Christ alone.
Okay, the whole last verse. Okay. No. the mic right here. Hello. Hello, hello, hello.
think you can do it. I think it'll be longer. And sometimes I just kind of come over here, and like if it's time to end the song, I just come over here, and the little seat is right there. I'm just gonna sit here.
name is Josh Ingen. I serve as the pastor here at Union Chapel Baptist Church. You can learn more about who we are and what we believe at our website, unionchapelbaptist.org. We understand that uh, if you're sick or things going on, you can't be with us in person, but don't let that stop you from not being actively engaged in the body of Christ. Seek out other believers. We would love for you to join us here in person, but if, you're, if you live far away, uh, join a healthy church uh, wherever you're at. And we are, my prayer is that we would worship God in spirit and in truth today. Good morning, good morning. Welcome, welcome. My name is Dick Bryant. I serve as a member here at Union Chapel. I want to welcome you to our services today. And I pray that, uh, that you're here to worship God and worship the Lord. And, and that's what we're going to be doing. So, uh, so join us in that, that worship here, if you will. Those of you that are watching us online, you're missing a real treat this morning. Because after the service, we're having a meal. So if you folks are online watching, if you were here, you could enjoy that meal with us. Try to be with us next time, okay? Oh, yeah, you still have time. Sure do. Still have time. Let's have a couple of announcements here we gotta, we're going to read this morning, and then uh, we're going to read a little scripture and pray, and we're going to turn the service over to these people behind us to do the singing this morning. All right, let's see what I got here. Um, Business meeting today, immediately following the worship service and a meal after that. Uh, evangelism training on March the 4th uh, and March the 5th, the first Sunday of the month, will be our, our, our regular monthly um, uh, deacons meeting. Uh, vacation Bible school, remember, remember that in prayer and be prepared for that. That's in July the 20th and through the 22nd. And then uh, October the 15th is a, is a big day for our church. That's a homecoming service. It starts at 1030. Dr. Matt Queen will be, uh, will be our guest speaker. And uh, dinner on the grounds after that. So uh, please be here. And, uh, and we look forward to that day. Our scripture this morning is Psalms 100. 
the first five verses. Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before, his, his, come before him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, and his faithful love endures forever, his faithfulness through all generations. Pray with me, please. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, Lord God, that you've allowed us to come to your house to worship this morning. I pray, Heavenly Father, that, that our acts of worship are pleasing in your sight, and, uh, and, and they, they lift you up. Your word tells us, Lord God, if we lift you up, then you'll draw all men unto you. Father, we're going we're gonna to lift you up this morning, and I pray, Father, that people will be drawn to you here in our service today. Thank you for blessing us this week. Thank you for the beautiful weather. Thank you for the, the beautiful sunshine and the flowers that, that are beginning to bloom so, so beautifully around us. It certainly is a joy to be a part of your creation, but it's also a task because you left us in charge of your creation, and Lord, help us to do a good job with that. Father, we're also in charge of telling people about you, and Father, help us to do a good job with that. Your scripture tells us to how, how will they know if, if we don't tell them. Let us be about the job of telling people about you, Lord God, and the good news that, that, uh, that, that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross and took those sins with him to the grave and then rose triumphantly that third day, allowing... A, a, preparing us for the triumphant uh, uh, resurrection when you come to, uh, to your earth again. Thank you, Lord God, for blessing our lives. Honor our, our service today. I pray that our service is honoring you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Good morning. Stand with us as we sing, He Has Made Me Glad. That's hymn number 214. me 
you're using your hymnal, you can turn to 329. That's There's Power in the Blood. Good morning. 
My name is Josh Ingen. I serve as a pastor here, and we're preaching through the book of Genesis. And we are, we'll be in Genesis uh, chapter 5, verse 28 this morning. And we're looking at the justice and mercy in the story of Noah. Genesis 5, starting verse 28. God's word is so valuable. It's so helpful for our lives. It is the very words, it is the very truth, the truth about who God is and what God has done, and the truth about who we are as humans. It is our ultimate authority. We are seeking to look at our lives, seeking to look at the world through the lens of God's word, of what God says, how we should look at things. So before we open his word today, let us pray that God would allow us to understand and apply his word to our hearts. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we, we realize that we need your spirit to guide us into understanding it correctly and applying it, that it would apply it to our hearts, that it would root out any sin, that it would allow us to see Jesus for who he is. God, we ask for a miracle today that uh, people that are dead in their sins would be raised again, raised to life in newness of life. And we know that is your working. And so we pray that now, that you would bless the, the teaching and hearing of your word. I would pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so we've been reading through the book of Genesis for five or six weeks now. Um, and last week we focused in on how we should not seek revenge we looked at a guy named Lamech, uh, but instead we should walk with God, follow him, trust in him, and we have faith in God like Enoch did. And each week we have been looking to see how each story in Genesis points to Jesus. It's always pointing us back to Jesus. The same will be true for today as we look at the first part of the story of Noah. And just a disclaimer, I will not be able to explain every single detail and specific verse and passage today. It will be more of an overview, but we'll get into some details here. Uh, so if you're looking for some, some details, there will be some, but not everyone, not answering every question you may have about this passage. Uh, because first off, we're just going to you know, go off, really take the easiest passage first. <laughs> Who are the sons of God <laughs> in Genesis 6, 1 through 4? You know, just start it off real easy there. Um, that's a joke, by the way. It's not easy. It's not easy. Um, number two, we'll look at the problem of evil in verses 5 through 7 and then jump over to 17. Uh, then I'm very creative in my point making here. Grace leads to salvation, which leads to obedience. I could not make that any shorter. I tried. But grace leads to salvation, which leads to obedience. And then lastly, we'll look, look at how the story of Noah points us to baptism in Jesus, looking at the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 3. So beginning, going back to Genesis 5, starting in verse 28, here is God's word. Uh, Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son, and he named him Noah. Uh, now we do need to make sure that this is, we know that this is not the same Lamech that we saw last week. Uh, there was two genealogies, two lineages, one of Seth um, and one of Cain. So this Lamech is the one of Seth, the godly lineage, right? And so he has this son, he names him Noah. And Noah will be way more popular than his dad. Most of you may have not even known his, who his dad was. Uh, 
not only do people forget about him, um, like I said, they usually, when they see this name, they, rec- they think of the other, the bad Lamech, that had sought revenge on people, he was violent, he sought vengeance. This is not the same guy. Um, and the question might be is like every, every generation, every son, you might be thinking of the promise of Genesis 3.15, when the promised offspring of Eve would defeat the serpent, would defeat sin and evil. And you're like, maybe this is the guy. So maybe Noah is the guy who will defeat sin and Satan. Um, but we know that Noah here it will not be the one who ultimately defeats sin and Satan. But he's pointing to Jesus And we know that he's pointing to Jesus here because he is a type of savior. He is a type of he's going to rescue his people in some way. And this was kind of his dad's prayer for him, his expectation, really. He says, continuing in verse 29, he named him Noah, saying, This one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. So upon reading this, you know, raise your hand if you grew up in a household where you felt like your parents had really high expectations of you, right? Okay, some people, right? That's good. High expectations are good. They can maybe go too far sometimes. Whatever their expectations were, whatever your parents' expectations of you were, I don't think they were like Noah's dad's expectations. They didn't say, behold, my child, who will reverse the curse of God on the ground for all of humanity. They probably said, like, maybe he'll go to college and you know, get a job, you know? <laughs> But for Noah's dad, maybe it wasn't just a high expectation, but maybe it was a prayer, praying that his son would be a blessing, praying his son would bring some relief, that his son would be a force against evil and pain. While Noah wouldn't be the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15, he is a type of Savior that looks forward to the ultimate Savior, Jesus. God would spare Noah and his family from the flood, looking forward to the day when God would spare humanity by pouring out the flood of his wrath on his son, Jesus. So many times today, we'll be seeing how the story of Noah prepares us to understand what Jesus accomplishes for us on the cross. So what happened that led up to the flood? You know that there's a flood with Noah. If you've read this story before, we get into who are the sons of God in Genesis 6. This is the leading up to sin and the flood. It says this in Genesis 6, starting in verse 1. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward, where the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. So now whatever we just read in verses 1 through 4, it led to the the complete evil of the world in verse 5. We see in verse 5, When the Lord saw that humankind's wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. It was sin upon sin, totally evil, corruption, right? But as we look back, what led to this? Who are the sons of God? Who are the Nephilim? 
Some translate Nephilim in verse 4 as giants, right? And one commentary I read this week is on this passage. It says the, the first four verses, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, are widely viewed as one of the most controversial and difficult texts in the Old Testament. I agree with that assessment. <laughs> it is very difficult. And while this is a very interesting subject, I will refrain from trying to chase too many rabbits, too many rabbit trails. The main debate is who are these sons of God? What are they, who are they referring to in Genesis 6 2? If you look back at verse 2, when it says, The sons of God, who are these? That they saw daughters of mankind, they were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. This led to the downfall of sin increasing. Whoever they were, what they did seems to have led to this, the downward spiral, right? So today I'll just give you quickly three main views of who they are and the implications of that, right? How that would affect your theology, how that might apply to your life for each view. And each view has its own proponents and has its own merits. I side with the first view here, just give you my cards on the table. Um, the first view is that this says the sons of God refer to fallen angels, so demons, right? They took bodily form and they married these women. They took women as their wives. Uh, this is the earliest and the longest standing interpretation. This view is present in Jewish interpretations like First Enoch, the Septuagint, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and Josephus. Uh, this is the view I lean towards uh, because the phrase sons of God that phrase is used elsewhere a few times in the Old Testament, and it usually refers, it seems to refer to angels. So it makes sense to be consistent in how the phrases are used. Now, that's not always, always the case. Sometimes phrases in the Bible in one place can mean something different based on the context, but we don't have a lot of context and things to go with, so I side with that. Now, if they are fallen angels, if the sons of God refer to fallen angels, demons, um, what would that impact our theology? How would that apply to our lives if that is the case? Um, this would support the Bible's clear teaching elsewhere that there is demonic influence behind a lot of sin, that there is a spiritual warfare going on, and this is kind of the beginning of it. We see demons and the spiritual warfare influencing the world and influencing sin, and so this would cause us to reflect and think about there is more to the world going on than we can see. There is a spiritual realm. There is something spiritual going on. There is demonic forces at play that we need to be aware of and depend on God to defeat and to uh, go against. Uh, the second interpretation, the second view, is that the sons of God refer to human rulers, uh, they're human kings that are taking multiple wives. Um, Jewish scholars in the mid-second century, and some hold this view today. So if the sons of God refer to kings, and they get this because uh, other ancient societies would call their kings sons of God, and so they might be thinking they're using that language from other societies. But if, if this is what they refer to, uh, it would support the teaching against uh, tyranny and abuse. So much like we all saw last week how Lamech was violent towards his wives, these men, these men seem to be forcing marriage upon these women. So obviously we should not, that would be a negative example of what not to do, of forcing marriage and being violent in marriage. And then the third view uh, the sons of God refer to the godly line of Seth. Okay, so this might be a little different thinking. Uh, the sons of God refer to the godly line of Seth. As we looked at, the godly line of Seth and then the sinful line of Cain. Cain killed his brother, right? 
And so the godly line of Seth wrongfully married the ungodly line of Cain, which they would refer to as the sons of men, right? And so this view is held by Augustine, uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and some hold this view today. So if this is what it's talking about, if it's talking about how the godly line of Seth shouldn't have married the uh, sinful line of Cain, it would support the teaching that a Christian should not marry a non-Christian, that there should be uh, separation. This, this emphasis of joining together with fellow believers that's present in the Old Testament and it's also present in the New Testament. Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians 6.14. So again, a, a main theme, whatever you land on in this passage, however you interpret it, um, there's a theme of the importance of marriage here, of who is marrying who and, and what that means for society. Uh, when marriage goes wrong, it results in all these kinds of sins. Uh, you can see that today when the family is broken, when marriages are broken. It affects the rest of society. Marriage is kind of like a foundation part, foundation for society and a foundation for the family. And so we can oftentimes be distracted by things out in the world we have, you know, 24-hour available news, social media. We, can, we have more information available to us than any other time in history. So we can get caught up in other people's stuff. We can get caught up in what they're doing and neglect our own things at home, neglect our own marriage. We can see, well, this marriage is doing this. This person's doing that. That country's doing that. But I've neglected my wife this week, right? I've sinned against my wife. I haven't been working to cultivate my marriage. We've neglected our own hearts. We've neglected our own marriages and relationships. So we need to focus on the foundation. That will you know, affect society as a whole. At the end of the day, whoever they were, and if they refer to the Nephilim, the giants, these people, it's the downward spiral of the consequences of sin. And we see one of the consequences in Genesis 6-3 when the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. So some think that this refers to the time frame before the flood. So it would be like portraying God's patience. In other words, God would be saying, You have 120 years before I issue justice. You have 120 years to repent before the flood comes. Um, that's one view. Um, while it's possible, I think it's more likely describing how God is limiting, limiting the human lifespan to 120 years, to about generally 120 years. Because if you think about it, the more time spent on earth, the more evil and corrupt they are becoming, right? So God is limiting the evil He's actually, this is a gracious act, limiting their evil by limiting their lifespan. Uh, this is done progressively over time. So you'll see people, even after this verse, obviously live way past 120 years. But it comes to fruition gradually at the end of uh, the Pentateuch, at the end of Deuteronomy, who dies at 120? Moses. So I think it's like a reflection back that it kind of it's God is limiting these people's lifespan to 120, and that seems like the general truth of of recorded history, um, the 
I looked it up. You know, no one's lived past and you know verified history uh, past 122 years. So there was a lady that lived 122 years, but everybody before her has only lived 119 years. So it seems to be pointing with the, the truth of our experience as well. So it seems that at least there's a there's this 120 general limitation of the human life, and again points us to the consequences of sin. It goes back to the beginning of Genesis. Sin will lead to death, right? God created us to live forever. But now we look around, most people are not getting anywhere close to 120. And many people, I've I've talked about this this week with people, they're like, I don't even want to live near that long. (laughs) That sounds terrible, right? With all the pain and toil. That sounds, I don't want to live that long. So we have Man, fallen angels, sin, death. This is a lot of bad news this morning. But just hang in there with me. Because you have to really understand the bad news so you can appreciate and understand the good news, right? As we see the problem of evil continue in our next section in verse 5. Because of all the sin and all evil, God declared that he would provide justice. He will punish this evil. In verse 5, we see, When the Lord saw that the human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. And he would do this by a flood. God tells Noah in Genesis 6, 17, he says, Understand that I'm bringing a flood, flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. When you think about this flood, you think of modern day floods and floods um, in society. They're, they're kind of common depending on their size. Obviously nothing like this in Noah's day. But even floods today can be very devastating, Right? They can be caused by a number of things. Uh, lots of rain that happen very quickly in one spot, uh, like a hurricane. You guys know about hurricanes in North Carolina. We were in Louisiana when Hurricane Katrina came through, so Louisiana knows a lot about hurricanes. When Hurricane Katrina hit Louisiana in 2005, almost over 1,800 people lost their lives. When it hurt, first hit the land, the storm surge was more than 26 feet tall. Can you imagine a wave, the surge of water of the ocean, 26 feet tall? Uh, Many evacuated New Orleans where it was uh, hit the worst. Um, And by God's grace, where we were living in the center of the state, it wasn't hit very hard where we were. Uh, But many were not able to evacuate. Many were not, did not want to leave their homes. And they were left stranded trying to survive the hurricane, right? You can remember those news broadcasts. Uh, my dad was actually working in the National Guard, and he was deployed to go down there to help rescue people. Um, so he was a helicopter mechanic, and they would be saving people off their roofs. They were on their roofs via helicopter. And when you think about it, all, even with all our technology, all the infrastructure, dams and bridges, and everything that we have, you realize we're not immune to natural disasters. There's only so much we can do. They have devastating effects. Now, with storms and natural disasters, and we're thinking about the flood of Noah and how God used the flood as a form of justice and punishment for all the sin and evil, 
we, some people are left asking, how does that apply today? What is floods and natural disasters? We see that in, no, in the book of Noah and throughout the Old Testament. So what is our theology of when things happen today? When natural disasters happen, how do we think about that? And specifically Christians who believe in God, who know that God of the Bible has all the power. Jesus, being God in the flesh, he could calm the wind and the waves, and he did in the New Testament. So you might ask, well, why allow a hurricane? Why allow a natural disaster? Right? Because we know that God created everything good, right? He know there, it was not meant to be this way. There was no, not meant to be evil, not meant to be death. Only after humanity sinned and rebelled against God, then evil came into the world. Sin and death. And so ultimately, the reason why there are these natural disasters is because it is a result of the fall. It is the outreaching effects of the curse of sin. These things wouldn't happen if we've never sinned, Right? So if you're following along, right? So these things, bad things happen because we sin. It's a consequence. Now the earth and nature is not the way it should be. It's no longer perfect, right? And some might say, okay, I, I'm tracking with you. I get that ba- there are bad things as consequences to man's sin and rebellion, the curse on the ground and the curse on the earth. I get that. But the question still remains for some of us, like, well, why doesn't God stop them from happening, right? Why doesn't he just stop all this evil, so here's some truth about the problem of evil and reflecting on the story of Noah. The Bible clearly depicts that many times God uses natural disasters as a form of judgment upon their sin, right? This is what led to the flood in Noah's time. God justly punishes evil, and the flood is the means by which he does that. Now we know that this is the reason for Noah's flood. We, we get the Bible. We get God's word on this. He says this is why this is happening. Right? So some things in life are consequences of people's sins. Right? This is why God could allow a disaster. Now listen closely. Don't take me out of context. You have to listen to the second part too, right? God could allow disasters as consequences for people's sin, as he did in the time of Noah. But make sure you hear this. Not every disaster is a direct punishment for people's individual sin. You hear that? So not every disaster is a direct punishment for people's individual sin. It was in the, in the time of Noah, and it could be, but it doesn't have to be. Because why? There are disasters that happen in the Bible that God allowed that we know was not a form of punishment, right? We know that it wasn't for someone's sin or rebellion that something bad happened to them, but God allowed it for different reasons. A common reason is to test their faith. To strengthen their faith, right? Do you remember anyone in the Bible where disasters happened and he was completely righteous and following God? Job, right? Job 1.1, there was a man in the country of Uz named Job, and he was a man of complete integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. They're setting this guy up to, to teach us. It's not because of his sin that everything about, is about to happen. All his family dies. He loses his possessions. He is in the most immense suffering that I could imagine. But he was walking with the Lord every step of the way. He was righteous. Job was walking with the Lord like Enoch. 
But instead of taking Job up into heaven without any suffering and death, God did something different. He allowed so much disaster and suffering in Job's life. Why? Why would God allow that? It was to magnify Job's faith in him, to increase Job's faith in him. Because Satan and other people might say, you know, Job didn't have faith in God because he only, or he only had faith in God because everything was working out, right? He had all the family, had everything he needed. That's why he loves you. That's why he loves God. But God's like, no. He's, he doesn't love me just because of the things he has, but he loves me and has faith in me for who I am. Similarly, with the apostles in the New Testament, they were following Jesus. They were to be his missionaries, and they were. They were killed because they preached the good news of Jesus. The apostle John was exiled to an island to, left to die. The apostle Paul, while traveling on a boat in the sea, he was going to share the good news across the ends of the earth, and God could have calmed the sea. He could have made the boat safely arrive, but he allowed the storm. Right? He allowed the boat to be shipwrecked. All this to point out that we need to realize and remember that bad things still can happen to God's children. Job, the apostles, many faithful Christians throughout history have suffered and died, not as a form of punishment, right? There is no condemnation in Christ. The bad thing happened to you is not coming if you were in Christ as a form of punishment. And we know that because Jesus took all the punishment for you on the cross, there is only God's love for you. You are his, uh, his son. You are his daughter in Christ. We have to realize that that is not a form of punishment when that natural disaster or that disaster comes. God is using that for some other purpose. We see, uh, actually, Jesus is coming to kind of explain some of God's purpose behind suffering. And maybe in an unlikely place, we see in John 9, verse 2, John 9, 2 we see this dialogue here, this question. His disciples asked Jesus, he said, they said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they have the idea that someone had to sin because of this bad thing, right? We often get into that. We see something bad happen. They're like, oh, they probably did something to deserve it, right? But he, Jesus is like, neither this man nor his parents sinned. And Jesus answered. And they're like, well, then you might think, well, why did this happen? Why was he born blind then? Here's Jesus' words. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. He allowed this man to be born blind so that Jesus can come along and heal him and God be glorified. So who's to say that's not happening in your life, right? Who's to say you're not like this blind man and God's saying, I allowed this to happen so I could be glorified and praised when I come and get you out of it? Right? And we may never get out of it in this life, but God promises to get us out of it one day into eternal life. And he will get all the glory and praise for that. So as we turn to our next section, we, see, we continue to see the grace and mercy of God, even in the midst of disasters, even in the midst of Noah and the flood. Because we see grace that leads to salvation, which leads to obedience. In Genesis 6, 8. Because while everyone else was evil, while everyone else was sinful, Noah is the light in the darkness. Verse 8. It says, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. These are, these are the family records of Noah. 
Noah was, was a righteous man, blameless among his t- contemporaries. Noah walked with God. He walked with God, just like Noah, but, and just like Job. But will God take him up into heaven like he did Enoch and avoid all the hardship? Not quite. <laughs> Not at all. He will save him from the flood, but he still has to go through the flood, right? He has to go through the flood. And notice, go back to verse 8, and this is a really important key verse part here. It says, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Now, found favor, uh, other translations like the King James Version have found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I think that's a, what conveys what's going on here. It is God's grace, Noah is who he is. It is by God's grace that Noah was different from the rest of his generation. We can often be tempted to compare ourselves to others and be prideful when we appear, when we appear to be less sinful than other people. We can say, look at me, I'm doing this and this and this. I'm doing so great, right? And we pat ourselves on the back. But do you realize the only reason you're not more sinful is because of God's grace? It's not anything good in you. It is God's grace. It is a gift just like it was to Noah. It was by God's grace that he was righteous, that he was walking with him. We need to thank God for our obedience, not thank ourselves. And then stop. if you are thanking God for your obedience, that will help you stop looking down on others and thinking that you're better than them because you realize, you realize that it's just by God's grace where you're at. You're totally dependent on him. And because of God's grace on Noah, Noah had faith in God to listen and obey when God told him to build an ark, basically to build a big box, that, this big object that would save them from the flood. As we read, this was by faith in Hebrews eleven seven, In the New Testament, the book of Hebrews 11 talks about these people had, had faith in God in the Old Testament. We looked how Abel had faith. We looked at how Enoch had faith. Now we look at Noah's faith. It says, by faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. The reason he obeyed God and did what he did, because he had faith in him. He had faith in God, which also led to a godly fear for God and led to obedience. So again, faith in God leads to obedience to his commands. It's not that obedience earns salvation, but true faith, true trust in God should lead to following him. It should lead to obeying his commands. Or like James in the New Testament would say, faith without works is dead. Noah had a true and living faith that resulted in obedience to God's commands. One thing amazing about the story of Noah as you read through it is that God tells him all this. He says, there's going to be a flood. There's evil all around. I want you to build this ark, gather these animals into it. What, what do we not have recorded in this story, I think is amazing. We don't have any recorded questions from Noah. Noah wasn't like, well, why? Are you sure? How do I do this? He's just like, okay, let's go. Let's do it. I will. We, we get verses like verse 22, uh, and Noah did this. He did everything that God commanded him. Uh, verse 5 in, in chapter 7, Genesis 7, 5, Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. He just did it. He had faith in God, and he did what he t- was told to do. 
Now, it's natural to ask God why. It's natural to cry out to him. We see that in the Psalms of lament, right? But even those cries of lament in the Psalms, even those cries of not knowing why things happen, they always end with the psalmist trusting in God. Like, I don't know why I'm crying. I don't like this. But at the end of the day, I trust you, God. And so let's imitate Noah in this. We, when God tells us to do something in his word, we see a command. Instead of trying to justify why we shouldn't do that, or maybe I'll do that later, let's just say, okay, God, yes. And seek to obey everything God has commanded us to do. As we'll see next week, for we know that even how good Noah was, we see him obedi- obeying him now here, how righteous Noah was. We'll see next week that Noah was not perfect. Because ultimately, Noah was appointed to Jesus, the only one who's perfect. As we move into our last section here, Noah and baptism in 1 Peter 3. As we said at the beginning, God made a way through the flood with Noah and the ark. And so God has also made a way to be saved from sin and death through Jesus and the cross. To get that, so the flood and Noah point to Jesus and the cross He's made a way for us to be saved from our sin as Noah was saved from the flood. And, and God actually makes this connection for us in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, uh, which that could be a whole sermon on itself, but I'll just point out a few, a few uh, key verses here. If you go over to 1 Peter 3, verse 20, he connects what Jesus is doing uh, with what, Noah, what God was doing in the Old Testament with Noah. It says, God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is, eight people were saved through water. That was, we'll see next week, that was Noah and his family, the eight people. And then this is a key point, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, right? So there, he is using the, uh, the story of Noah going through the flood as a picture, as a symbol, as a pointer to baptism as our baptism, as our symbol of our faith in Jesus when we're saved. When we believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we want to follow him in baptism, right? He said, so he compares Noah going through the floodwaters to us going through the waters of baptism. Noah is saved from God's wrath by being in the ark, right? God was pouring out his wrath through the means of the flood as punishment, as justice for sin, And so God's wrath, the flood, is all around Noah and the ark. In baptism, we symbolize our faith in Jesus, symbolize our our identification with Jesus. So when we go under the water, it represents Jesus who went under the floodwaters for us. Jesus went under the floodwaters of God's wrath for us. And when we come out of the water... It represents Jesus coming out of the floodwaters of death. He conquered. He lived. He was resurrected into eternal life. So when you think of the story of Noah and the ark, think back to your baptism. Think of Jesus' death and resurrection, keeping you safe from the flood of God's wrath. Because going back again to the image of a hurricane, imagine Imagine standing in front of the ocean as a Category 5 hurricane is approaching. Hundreds of miles an hour of wind, rain, and then the storm surge. 26 feet, 50 feet, 100 feet, an infinite wave approaching you. 
What are you going to do? How are you going to survive this? The only way to escape, the only way to survive is to stand behind Jesus. He is the only one who is able to take that for you. You can't run away from it. No one else can take it for you. You can't do enough good things and build your own ark to save yourself. You have to trust in Jesus. Admit that you're sinful. Admit that that wrath coming, that you deserve it. But Jesus died in your place. There's no other way to escape the floodwaters of God's wrath and justice on your sin. And we look at the flood of Noah, that's only a glimpse. That's only a portion. That is a temporary picture of God's eternal wrath. Because again, our sin is against an eternal God. So it deserves eternal punishment. And the only person that can take eternal punishment on our behalf is eternal God himself, Jesus, fully God, fully man. The question for you is, will you get on the ark? Will you trust in Jesus as your God, as your Savior, as the king of your life? If you are already on the ark today, if you have trusted in Jesus, the question for us, for you, is how are you living out your faith? Are you inviting others to get on the ark with you? Or have you forgotten the depth of God's salvation? Have you kind of made your sin and God's wrath and justice seem smaller than it is? Have you grown cold to his grace over the years thinking that you are doing the good things, right? It's not by God's grace, but it's your goodness, right? Or maybe some of us here today, maybe some of you, maybe, maybe you've been pretending to be on the ark. Maybe you said, yeah, I'll get on the ark. I'll trust in Jesus later. Or is trusting in Jesus just a show? Is it a superficial relationship? Is it a counterfeit get-out-of-jail-free card? Right? Which upon closer inspection, someone, if you look closely, reveals that you don't really love and worship God. Final plea today is get on the ark. The flood is coming. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. God, we need your spirit to move in this place. If there's going to be any conviction of sin, any repentance, we know that it is, it is your work, it is your grace. God, we are asking that today, that you would move in a mighty way, that people's hearts would be transformed, that they would respond to your word and not not say, that's not me, I don't have sin like that, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person, but they would realize in front of a holy God that they're not, and that the only way that they can be saved is by trusting in Jesus. And God, for those who are saved, those who are, are on the ark, that they would be inviting others to be saved as well, that we would have a desire for the lost, that we have a desire for people to have eternal life, to be forgiven of their sins, that they could be rescued and have eternal life Give us that desire. God, if there's anyone here today that they realize they've just been putting on a show, they've been pretending to follow you, they, that today you would make it real, that they would want to live for you, 
they'd be sold out for you, that they would want to follow all your commands, not just some of them, not just the easy ones, not just the ones that they like or are good at. God, thank you again for this time that we are here together, get to pray for one another, get to worship together. God, help us to worship you in spirit and truth now as we respond to how you're speaking to us through your word. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us as we sing, This Is My Father's World. It's hymn number 143.